Father in heaven, we come into your presence this morning, this early morning hour, because we want to know you better. And Father, this morning we ask that you would speak to us through your word, that you would draw us nearer to you, raise us up to fight as soldiers in your army. Thank you, Father, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. As you take a survey in Scripture, you will find that the Bible describes the Christian experience in many different ways. The Bible describes it in using the illustration of farming, athletic pursuits, the building, shepherding, and so on. There's many different ways that the Bible describes the Christian experience. And all of these serve to illustrate different aspects of our Christian walk. However, I want to talk to you this morning about one that we find repeated oftentimes throughout Scripture, and that is that the Christian experience is one of war. Our Scripture, or our sermon title this morning is, Life is War. We find this repeatedly described throughout Scripture. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7 describes the beginning of this war here on this earth when the Bible says that there was war in heaven. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3, the Bible talks about the war that raged during the time of the dark ages and it was given unto him to make war with the saints. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, the Bible tells us that this war will continue to rage. The Bible tells us that the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that in this war that we are all fighting, that the outcome for God's people is certain and that we will be successful if we stick with our general. Perhaps my favorite passage in all of the book of Revelation, Revelation 17 and verse 14, the Bible says, these shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. There's one thing that is certain. The Christian life is one of war. You know, I find it interesting that as you look at this description throughout the Bible, the Bible does not describe a uh, a non-wartime part of life and a wartime part of life in the Bible. The Bible simply describes that we are in battle. It doesn't come to an end here on this earth. It will come to an end when we get to the kingdom of heaven. I know, I know you all are looking forward to being there. In his book, Prevailing Prayer by Taylor Bunch, the great Adventist preacher, he makes this statement. Christians are not on a playground enjoying a picnic. We are on a battlefield engaged in a fight to the finish. It is an all-out war. We occupy a fortress, not a pleasure house. I've been convicted recently that the sooner we come to the realization 
that we are engaged in a full-time, unending war on this earth, the better soldiers we will be. You see, sometimes we go around in our life as though we are civilians. And you know what happens when you drop a civilian in the middle of a war? Is it good or bad? Right? The outcome is usually not good when you drop a civilian right in the middle of a thick, thick battlefield. We are engaged in a war. We are soldiers in this war. We are not civilians. We are engaged in the battle. We are not standing on the sidelines. Life is war. Why is it war? I believe that the reason why it is war is because it's a constant battle to maintain our faith and our surrender of our soul to our Heavenly Father. It is a constant battle to keep your soul surrendered. From the pen of inspiration, it says this, the Christian life is a battle and a march. Look up that phrase, a battle and a march. You'll find many statements on that. The warfare is unceasing. The warfare is what? With earnest, determined efforts, we must constantly oppose the forces of the enemy. We must what? Constantly oppose the forces of the enemy. You know, sometimes when we come to camp meeting, this is a wonderful place. And the tendency can be to relax ourselves because we are among those who are like believers. But I want to tell you something this morning. The battle has not stopped just because you're at Michigan Conference camp meeting. Another statement from the pen of inspiration says this, the rest is in heaven for the weary. Somebody ought to say amen to that. There is rest, but it's not here. Rest for the weary is in heaven. The crown for the brows of the warriors. We have no time to sit down now, no time to, deve- to, to devote to self-pleasing. There is a crown that is waiting for the weary warrior. Just press a little longer, brothers and sisters, and that time will come. You know, we enjoy living in a country, I hear this quite often from Seventh-day Adventists, they say, I'm thankful to live in a country where we can worship God according to the dictates of our conscience, that we have freedom and not religious persecution. And, and I wanted to, I'm, I'm thankful for that as well. But what I've come to realize is that I think that this sometimes lulls us into a state of complacency. It's interesting that when you survey those who live in the parts of the world where persecution is the thickest, that you will find that those people have the thickest relationship with God because the battle is real to them. We need to pray that God will make that battle real to us each and every day. It's interesting as Paul writes to Timothy in the books of First and Second Timothy, He encourages this young minister to view his whole life and ministry from a wartime perspective. Let me just give you a couple of passages here that illustrate this. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before uh, on thee, that thou by them 
mightest war a good warfare. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, No man worth that worth entangleth himself in the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And I really like the way the ESV version translates this Bible passage. The first part, it says, no soldier entangles himself in civilian pursuits. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, it says, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art able, or thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Fight as a soldier a good warfare. Don't be entangled in civilian pursuits. Paul is advising Timothy, view your life, view your ministry, view everything through the lens of war. And then Paul, pointing to himself as an example, says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And what was the result that Paul said as a result of him keeping the faith and fighting this fight? Henceforth there is laid up for me a what? A crown of righteousness. Yes, it's an athletic uh, pursuit to be a soldier. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes focus. It takes devotion. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, as we continue to fight in this battle, faithfully holding on to the hand of our general, we will be victorious. And that crown of righteousness that is laid up for Paul is also laid up for you and me. But perhaps one of the greatest tragedies that I have found in my ministry, and I'm sure that you've been aware of this as well, are those who profess to be Christians, Seventh-day Adventists, sons and daughters of God, and they go from one defeat to the next. Have you experienced that? I know I have. The Bible describes quite a different picture when you look at it, that we can have un in, uninterrupted victory, that we can go from one battle to the next, victorious, victorious, victorious in that engaging, in that battle with Satan. However, when we look at our experience, unfortunately, we end up going from defeat to defeat, and I believe it's because of the way we are viewing our lives. Do we view life as a time of peace? Or do we view life as a time of war? And I believe that switch in that paradigm will change a lot in our lives, whether or not we experience victory or defeat in this spiritual battle that we are engaged in. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, this morning, this is not a time of peace. This is a time of war. What if I told you that the, tomorrow morning, World War III was going to happen right here. How would that change your life? Would it change it? Yes or no? If you knew that the, 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 the troops were heading this direction, that the enemy was coming, that the Air Force was coming, that the tanks were rolling this direction, when, if you knew that the enemy was going to be here tomorrow morning, would that change the way you lived your life today? Absolutely. What would you do? You would prepare yourself. Amen? You would prepare yourself because you know the enemy is coming. Guess what? The enemy's here. Did you prepare yourself this morning when you woke up? The enemy is here. 
We don't have to wait till tomorrow for this thing to happen. He has already rolled in. Now we pray that the Holy Spirit is permeating this place, and I believe that God is answering that prayer. But I do know that there is a controversy, there is a war that is raging around us, and we need to be prepared to meet the onslaughts of the enemy. Brothers and sisters, we are fighting a war that's much worse than World War II, as gruesome as it was. And this is going to be a war that we can be victorious in by God's grace. Perhaps the greatest passage, if you would turn there in your Bibles with me, is Ephesians chapter 6 on this idea of war. We won't have time to go through the entire passage in great detail, but I want to just touch on it a little bit here this morning as we begin this theme of war in our morning devotions. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, Paul gives us this familiar passage. And as you read through Paul's description of the armor of God, one thing is clear. Paul is telling us that life is war in so many words. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says this, Finally, my brethren. What are the next two words? Be what? Be strong. Does that mean we need to go work out? What does the next part of the passage say? Be strong what? In the Lord. Finally, my brethren, be strong. Not in your own strength. Not in the strength of your pastor. Not in the strength of your denomination. Not in the strength of the Michigan Conference. Be strong in the Lord. And in the power of His might. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. I want to talk about this a little bit here this morning. First thing that Paul says, it's interesting to me, before Paul even talks about the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, the breastplate of right, before he even talks about that, before he even gets into any part of the armor of God, the first thing that he says is be strong in the Lord. And oftentimes I think we go around trying to fit on our breastplate of righteousness and get our helmet of salvation on and shouting our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace and we try to go off into battle before we even stop to say, hey, whose strength am I going in? And we tumble ourselves off into war and we pull out our sword to the spirit and we begin to fight the battle, but we're fighting in our own strength. And then we find that as we begin this battle, that at first we're full of energy, but then we begin to get weary. Paul says, before you put that armor on, to be strong in the Lord. Your strength has to come from above, not from within. That's what Paul is saying. Now, I think it's interesting to note one of the greatest promises in the Bible that you hear quoted over and over again, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ, which... You see, Paul is setting us up for success. The promise that he gave us, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Therefore, if I go into battle in the strength of God, can I be victorious, yes or no? According to Paul, according to the Word of God, the answer is unequivocally yes. Now, here's the interesting thing. 
You know, if you were to take a modern-day soldier and put all of the modern equipment on him, you know, the bulletproof vests and all of the fancy uh, implements of war and everything like that, the helmets and all of that, if you were to put all of that stuff on a modern-day soldier who is a coward, and you send him off into battle, what's he going to do? When he starts hearing the sound of artillery, he is not going to run toward the enemy. He is going to run away from the enemy because his heart is not strong. It's not courageous. He does not have the heart of a soldier. And brothers and sisters, the enemy that we have to face is much greater than any enemy here on this earth. The enemy is not in the Middle East. Somebody ought to say amen to that. The enemy is within. The enemy is, is, is in our home, in our families, in our churches. He's trying to rip us apart. And Paul is saying, before you go into battle, you need the strength, you need a strong heart from God. And then as you have the power and the strength, the courageous heart inside of you that is pounding with the strength of God, then you put on the armor of God. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, when you have the power of God in your life, when you have the power of Jesus in your life, then you strap on the armor of God, you are invincible. Second Corinthians chapter 9, the Bible tells us <coughs> that, strength, that our strength is made perfect in our weakness. Paul says that when I am weak, then I am strong. What are we doing? We're looking away from self and to the source of all power and strength. That is Jesus. What does Paul say? Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, morning by morning, meeting Him in your devotions carrying Him with you throughout your day, consulting Him in the many decisions in life that you have to make. Go in the strength of the Lord. Here's a promise for you. Psalms chapter 100, verse 39, verse, sorry, 100, chapter 139, 38, 138, verse 3. There we go. Psalms 138, verse 3. Powerful promise here. The Bible says this, in the day when I cried or prayed, thou answerest me. And strengthenest me with strength in my soul. Is that a relevant Bible passage or what? What does David say? He says, when you cry to God, he will give you a strong heart. It's time for us to stop fighting in our own strength and start fighting in the strength of the Lord. But there's another thing here that Paul says, and I find this interesting. So first, he says the first command that he gives, before you go into battle, go in the strength of the Lord. But then he says that we must be well-armed as we go into battle. It's not just enough to have a courageous heart. A courageous soldier that goes off in the battle, not properly clad, is going to be a target of the enemy, and he's going to fall quickly. But Paul says you need a courageous heart, but then you also need the armor that will sustain you in that battle. And he says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. 
It's interesting. What kind of people wear armor? We're not civilians, brothers and sisters. You are not a civilian. We have to start acting like soldiers and not like civilians. We have to start thinking like soldiers and not like civilians. We have to start thinking in terms of war and not in terms of peace. We need a courageous heart, but we also need the armor of God. Why? Why do we need the armor of God? Well, he goes on. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the enemy. You see, what God wants us to do in this battle is He wants us to be able to stand. Amen? He doesn't want us to get knocked over. He doesn't want us to be a casualty. He doesn't want you to be a statistic. He wants you to be able to stand when you go into that battle and to be victorious in His might. Review and Herald, page, uh, April, uh, Review and Herald, May 25, 1905, says this, If we have on the heavenly armor... We shall find that the assaults of the enemy, are you ready for this? Will not have power over us. I want to read that one more time. If you have on the heavenly armor, we shall find that the assaults of the enemy will not have power over us. That's a promise for you this morning as you go throughout the day that if you have the heavenly armor on and the power of Jesus, a courageous heart inside of you, that you will be victorious. The enemy will not have power over you. I want you to also notice something in the passage that I think is obvious but maybe overlooked. The Bible says again, put on the whole armor of The whole armor of what? Whose armor is it? Whose? Not yours. It's God's armor. So if it's God's armor, where do you get it from? Is that obvious? It's coming straight out of the passage. It's God's armor. He has to give it to us. It's kind of like when Paul talks about how all of our righteousness is like filthy rags, right? If we go in the power and strength of our own might, if we put on our own armor, it's like our righteousness being like unfilthy, it's like a filthy rag. We will be unsuccessful if we go into battle in our own armor. Some people are like, yeah, you know, thanks for the, the advice, Paul, for the armor of God, but I think I'll go in my cardboard armor instead because I spent a lot of time working on this. And you know, cardboard armor is okay when it comes to sticks and stones. But that's not the kind of battle we're fighting, brothers and sisters. And so we need to take off the cardboard armor, lay it to the side, and put on God's armor. It's not mine. It's His. And if it's His, I need to ask Him for it. Did you ask for the armor of God this morning? Paul says we need to go in the power and strength of the Lord. We need to have courageous heart. But when we go into this battle, we must be properly prepared and properly protected from the assaults of the enemy. Why is this? Notice what he goes on to say in verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Stop. 
We wrestle not against what? Listen to me carefully this morning, brothers and sisters. We are not wrestling and fighting against human beings. Did you hear me this morning? The battle is not with your spouse. The battle is not with your children. The battle is not with your church members. The battle is not with your coworkers. The battle is not with your family. The battle is not human. We so oftentimes think that if only this person would act in such and such a way, then the battle would go away. That's not biblical. The Bible says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against humans, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, I'm not saying that the enemy does not use humans to try to instigate us, but we have to understand that when we are met with a human challenge, that the person is not the problem. It's the one who is behind that person that is trying to instigate you to make a choice that will compromise your armor. So as you go throughout your day today... Somebody cuts you off in their golf cart. Remember, they're not the battle. When you go to step on that tram to go to potluck and somebody steps in before you and there's no seats left, remember, the battle is not human. It's not that person. The devil's using that to try to instigate you to compromise your armor. battle we fight, and the enemy we fight against, he does not sleep, he does not get weary, but he is constant in his attacks. You see, the battle is with self, right? Doesn't Ellen White say that that's the greatest battle that ever has to be fought is the battle with self? And so often, we want to put that battle on the shoulders of somebody else because we don't want to admit that the problem is within. The battle is when you lose your temper. The battle is when you get impatient. The battle is when you are tempted to retaliate in an unchristlike manner. That's the battle. The battle is not against other human beings, brothers and sisters. We need to remember this. I think that our churches would run so much more smoothly if we could remember that the battle is not human. The devil uses these little situations to try to pull our strings to get us to react in a certain way. Are you going to be a devil's puppet or a God's puppet? Verse 13, Paul goes on. He says, wherefore, or therefore... In other words, because of what he said in verse 12, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, he says, because of that, take unto you the what? The only thing, brothers and sisters, I, 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 forgive me if I'm stating the obvious, but I've, I've found in my ministry that the obvious needs to be stated, because somehow we have missed the obvious. We have headfuls of knowledge but we do not have the practical experience many times. We know the right answers in Sabbath school class. We know the right answers. We can almost sometimes finish the preacher's sentence. 
but we aren't having that experience. Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, Paul says, because of that, take unto you the whole armor of God. What is the only thing that will withstand the attacks of the enemy? In the text, Paul is saying, the only thing that will withstand the attack of the enemy is the armor of God. Listen to me carefully. I'm going to repeat this probably many times throughout this week. Having a head full of the 28 fundamental beliefs is not going to protect you against the onslaughts of the enemy. Somehow we have gotten to this point in Adventism that because we keep the Sabbath, because we eat the right diet, because we uh, know the truth about the state of the dead and the second coming, because we have all that, we are safe from from the attacks of the enemy. It is a fallacy. There will be many Seventh-day Adventists, as you, all, as you well know, that will miss out on the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they didn't put on the armor of God. And when they came into battle, they were defeated by the enemy. Even though they knew the right answers. We have to understand that this is not an intellectual thing. It is a relationship with a living God. God is not interested in having people with headfuls of knowledge. Now listen, I spent seven years of my life preaching this doctrine. I believe in the doctrines of this church. I believe that they need to be preached. I believe that they need to be understood. But brothers and sisters, it's a relationship with Jesus. We have to understand that it's not just a doctrine-based religion, but that the doctrines lead to the one who will save us, Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul says, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Paul uses the word stand three times as he describes the armor of God. The obvious conclusion is that God wants us to stand. Listen to the New Living Translation of this verse, verse 13. It says this, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Listen to this. Then, after the battle, you will still be standing firm. That's what God wants. God wants that when the battle comes to the end, He wants you to still be standing. As you see Jesus come in the clouds of heaven, lo, this is our God. We have waited for Him. You are standing. You are a weary soldier, but you are a victorious soldier. A crown of righteousness will be laid upon your sweat-stained brow. How do we stand? We stand by resisting the temptations of Satan. This temptations to sin, we stand. You know, that great promise in the book of James, resist the devil and he will... I love that Bible passage. In my mind, whenever I read that Bible passage, I have the mental image of a dog running away from me with his tail between his legs. You like that, don't you? Dog running away from me with his tail between his legs. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We fight this battle by resisting those temptations. You know what those temptations are in your life. You know them better than anybody else. How are you equipping yourself to fight that battle today? Did you equip yourself to fight that battle today. 
we must move quickly now. I want to share with you a few things here, just big picture things. As you continue to read Ephesians chapter 6, Paul goes on in verse 14. He says, stand therefore, there's that word again, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of, finish it for me, righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Six things that Paul tells us we need to take with us as we go into battle. As we have that courageous heart, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. In other words, he says, don't forget your breastplate. (laughs) Don't forget your helmet. Take it all with you, with that courageous heart, that strong heart that God has given to you. You've prayed for it and God has given you. Then put on every piece of the armor and then go forth victorious. Now, here's something interesting to me. Paul takes what we typically think of as things that are a blessing, right? Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the Word of God. We typically think of all of these things as a great blessing, and they are. But it's interesting to me that Paul takes all six of those things and he puts them in a wartime context. You see, it's not just about righteousness in a vacuum, but righteousness is something that is used to be successful in war. Salvation is not just something that we say, Thank you, God, for salvation. That's part of it. But salvation is something that we put on to fight war. Paul is telling us that all of these things are to be used in the engagement of battle. In other words, God has conscripted these things for battle. Therefore, if we know the truth, we need to wear it like a belt. If we have righteousness, We are to wear it as a breastplate. If we cherish the gospel of peace, we are to put it on as a soldier's footwear. If we rest our faith in the promises of God, we are to fasten them on our arm as a shield. If we enjoy salvation, we are to secure on the helmet of salvation. And if we love the word of God, we must use it as a sword. They've all been conscripted to be used in a wartime context. Again, friends, there is no wartime part of life and a peacetime part of life. Life is war. Life is war. You know, it's interesting to me that many Adventists, myself included, could rattle off the armor of God probably off the top of their head. If we all got together in a group of five here this morning, before we even read Ephesians chapter 6, in that group of five people, you probably could have all come up with all six pieces of the armor of God. We know that right here. But our casual approach to Christianity reveals that it is a head knowledge and not a heart knowledge. It's got to make that trip from here to here. It has to impact not just the way I think, but how I live my life. The knowledge is not what we need so much as the experience of exercising that knowledge in our life. 
Here's something that's interesting to me. In war, everything changes, does it not? Many of you remember the time of World War II. Maybe even some of you lived as during that time. My grandfather fought in World War II. I looked at the history. Everything changed during World War II. During wartime, everything changes. People live their lives differently. The newspaper carries the headlines about what's going on with the troops and what they're doing on the front lines. Family talk about their loved ones who are courageously fighting on the front lines against the enemy. Families write and pray for the safety of those who are fighting in the battle. Everyone is on high alert. We are armed, we are vigilant, and we spend our money differently. Everything changes when we are engaged in war. You look at America during the time of World War II and how they lived their lives, and you compare it to the way we are living our lives today. It's all the difference in the world. How do we view life? Do we view life as a time of peace, or do we view life as a time of war? It will change everything in your life the way you view life. What lens do you view it through? Peace or war? The wartime effort touches everybody, not just the frontline workers, but even those who are supporting those frontline workers. Very few people think that we are engaged in a war that is greater than World War II. Satan is the worst, as I mentioned, the worst enemy that can be met. And listen to me carefully, friends. In this battle, the casualties don't just lose an arm or a leg. The casualties don't just lose their physical life. But in this battle, the casualties are much higher. The stakes are much higher. They can lose out on their eternal salvation. How are you viewing your life? Are you viewing it through the lens of peace? Or are you viewing it through the lens of war? Towards the tail end of World War II, the U.S. government decided that they were going to build a troop carrier. The British had a troop carrier that could effectively move troops to various parts of the world. And so the U.S. government invested $80 million in a troop carrier built by the Navy. The sole purpose was to speedily carry 15,000 troops to just about anywhere where the war was being fought. By 1952, seven years after World War II ended, the SS United States was completed. The ship could travel at 44 knots, about 51 miles per hour. It could steam 10,000 miles without stopping for fuel or supplies. It could outrun any other ship and could make nonstop trips anywhere in the world in less than 10 days. It was the fastest and most reliable troop carrier in the world at that time. Built for war. The only thing is, the SS United States was never used for war. It was put on standby during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but it was never actually used in battle. Instead, the SS United States was retrofitted to be a luxury liner. 
to carry heads of state, presidents, and celebrities to various places. As a luxury liner, the SS United States could not carry 15,000 troops, but just under 2,000 people could fit on the ship. It had 695 staterooms, four dining saloons, three bars, two theaters, five acres of open deck, a heated swimming pool, and the world's first air-conditioned cabin. It became a means of indulgence for the wealthy patrons who traveled peacefully across the United States. You know, things look a lot different in the luxury liner than they do in a troop carrier, don't they? The faces of the people, they look different. The conversations are different. The pace at which a luxury liner moves is much different than the pace of a troop carrier. Today, the SS United States rots away, moored to a dock in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Many people have tried to resurrect it but have been unsuccessful. I believe it stands there as a warning to God's church. Simply put, brothers and sisters, the Seventh-day Adventist church was built for war. Do you believe that? The dragon was wroth with the remnant of her seed, and went to make war. The Seventh-day Adventist Church, in my opinion, and I believe it's biblically supported, was built for spiritual war. But have we made it into a luxury liner? I hope that settles inside of your mind as you go back to your churches, that you will see your church not as a luxury liner, but as a troop carrier. If you view life as a time of peace, you will think of the church as a means of entertainment and a place to make you feel comfortable. But if you view the church, if you view the time that we live in as a time of war, you will view the church as a means of equipping you for battle. Just flipping that lens from a peacetime to a wartime changes everything. God's church is not a luxury liner, it is a troop carrier. It has been designed to defeat the enemy and to take as many people to the kingdom of heaven as possible. We have to stop thinking that we live in a time of peace and understand that we live in a time of war, that we are soldiers fighting in the army of God, and that by God's grace and through his power and strength alone, we will be victorious in this battle and take as many people to the kingdom of heaven as possible. Signs of the time. August 30th, 1905, says this. The idea that Christ's followers can be excused from the conflict 
meeting no trials at all, enjoying the comforts and even the luxuries of life is a fearful mistake. Have we bought into that fearful mistake? The Christian life is a battle on the march, calling for aggressive warfare, perseverance, and endurance. It is not a mimic battle in which we are engaged. This is no make-believe conflict. We have a most powerful adversary to meet. Those who serve under the blood-stained banner of Prince Emmanuel will, give, will be given difficult work which will tax every power of their being. They will have painful trials to endure for Christ's sake. They will have conflicts which will rend their soul. But I like this part. But if they are faithful soldiers, they will say, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Well, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is not a mimic battle that we are fighting. This is a battle to the death. And I pray that God will help you through this time here at camp meeting to switch the lens that you are looking through. And that you will say, God, put me on a wartime footing. Help me to see that I am a soldier, not a civilian. That your church is a troop carrier equipping God's people for war, not a means of indulgence and entertainment to make my life more comfortable. Help me, Lord, to view things the way you view them and to go forth into battle in the power and strength of Jehovah. Is that your desire this morning? We have to pray for this, brothers and sisters. God is more willing to give it than we are to receive it. He wants you to be so victorious. He wants you to get to heaven one day. He has given you everything you need if you will but depend upon him to give it to you. Let's pray for that this morning and ask God to help us so we fight the good fight. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father in heaven, as we begin our day together as a church family, on this your holy Sabbath day, we have been reminded that there is a war to be fought. Father, I pray that you would help us to see life through the lens of war, not peace. Father, how our heart yearns to be with you in heaven. And as we look to that as the goal, may you sustain us in your omnipotent power as we go forth in battle clad in the armor of God, Lord, may we be victorious. Give us, Lord, victory after victory after victory. Help us, Father, in our local churches.
to view life as war against the principality and powers. That the war is not with our fellow church member. That the war is within. The war is with the enemy of all enemies, Satan himself. Lord, put us on a wartime footing. May we look to you as our great general to get our orders in this battle. Thank you, Father, for this precious group of people here this morning and those that are listening over the various media outlets. May your spirit press close to us, I pray, as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.